Let's pretend for a moment that the snake in Eden was actually a compassionate figure who had in mind the good of Adam and Eve. And <laughs> the snake compassionately, through reason yeah. and through kindness. I feel like you're brainstorming a new History Channel special. <laughs> I am. Right <laughs> I totally am. I'm on like ancient aliens right now. <laughs> All right, this is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. I am Stephen Long. I'm here with Matt Langston. Again, we're still here. Hello, Matt. (laughs) Hi. So we just finished up a two-part series about faith and doubt and Science Mike's axioms of faith. And so uh, definitely go back and listen to that. But we got a lot of really great questions about dealing with doubt on Facebook and Twitter. I sent out the question last night just to see what we would get in. And the questions were so good that I thought that we should just do a whole episode addressing and discussing these questions. So that's what we're going to do. Yeah. And and um, none of these answers, I, 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 Stephen, I think I speak for both of us when I say that, that we're not giving definitive. Oh, it, God, no. Completely. We, we aren't even giving answers. Yeah. We'll just be rambling. Totally really. subjective. Uh yeah. Completely subjective, mostly rambling, probably off topic. But hey, that's what you're listening to the show for. <laughs> right. And and by the way, in case you aren't familiar with Matt, hello, Matt Langston. Hi. Say hello. Hi. Very good. <laughs> and Matt Matt is uh, the owner of Rock Candy Recordings. Yeah, Stu- I, 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 du- I run a small record label called Rock Candy Recordings. I play in a band called Eleven D Seven and the Jelly Rocks. I do the music for Sacred Tension and also for a whole bunch of other other things. Yeah, he is awesome and very thoughtful. And so I'm glad to have him on the show. I'm stoked to be here. All right. So let's just jump into the first question. Okay. Matt, you can choose which one. So I'm just, I'm literally just scrolling through Twitter right now and, and just seeing what, what strikes my fancy. Um, there's Very good. <laughs> there's one. There's one by Peace Joy Coffee that says, uh, how does Christianity pass the cult test? It's a great question. I thought that was a really great question too, because I think that, I don't know if there's necessarily an easy answer for that reason being that I have come into contact with so many different groups of people practicing what they would consider to be Christianity mm. that I think does not pass the cult test. I think it that it is very cultish. Yes. <laughs> that it is it is very sort of bastardized or twisted or yes. convoluted. I love this question and it's one that I have struggled with. And it's funny that Peace Joy Coffee brings it up because <laughs> <laughs> Um, Eat, pray, love. Eat, pray, love. Peace, joy, coffee. (laughs) I think peace, joy, coffee would be a better book. Uh, Eat, pray, love really sucked. (laughs) Um, I never read it. But I'm showing my my biases here. Right, right. Um, So I was actually going to ask this question to Chris Shelton, who is a 
he would not call himself a cult expert, but he is an, an expert in Scientology, and he's a kind of semi-regular guest on yeah. my show. And, uh, you know, we did an episode several months ago about YWAM, Youth with a Mission, which mm-hmm. was the organization I was in, and whether or not it was a cult. And I wanted to ask Chris just about Christianity in general. I uh, didn't ever really get around to the question, but one thing that Chris does bring up that I find really helpful is differentiating between cult and destructive cult. Mm. A destructive, because really the first problem we run into is the word cult. Yeah, It is a very vague term and it's also a, uh, a negative term. A lot of people in the scholarly community who who study cults prefer the term new religious movements because it doesn't have that stigmatized connotation. Um, and, and so the first problem we run into is what even does the word cult mean? And that's hard to define. Chris Shelton differentiates between cult and destructive cult because really a cult can be anything. And we are all in cults, ba- groups of people who believe similar things. And there's nothing wrong with a cult. Right. The problem comes with destructive cults. And destructive cults are there they have some key attributes. They tend to be obsessed with making money. They tend to gather around an authoritarian figure. They have very unhealthy power structures. They have unhealthy power structures. <clears throat> they exclude they they cut people off from outside resources right. and community. Right. They cut people off off from the outer world they force people they they force people to cut ties they just, there are lots of if you don't feel safe asking questions that's an ask, that is uh if dissonance is punished mm-hmm. if questions are punished that's a mark of a destructive cult okay yeah. so the problem is that nothing ever really fits into clear boundaries, Mm. right? Nothing ever really fits into clear categories. And the truth is both secular and religious communities and organizations live on a spectrum of health and unhealth. Mm. And it's really easy to, I mean, we, we can look at Heaven's Gate or Jonestown or Scientology and say, oh, that's a cult. That is a destructive cult, no question, <laughs> right? But then it's just like everything else outside of that lives in this incredibly unclear territory. Well, yeah, and I feel like I absolutely have seen churches that are cults run in in the way in you know in a cult like way. So there, there actually, I was really glad that you brought this up because there's some really great sort of basic signs that you are maybe not necessarily in a cult, but you are on your way to one, or maybe you, you are in one. A lot of times there will be an opposition to critical thinking. Yes. That, that occurs within that, within that group. They uh, often members are isolated or penalized for leaving. Yes. Which I feel like in some ways, maybe We've both experienced oh, yes. <laughs> within Christianity. Oh, yes. Um, the emphasizing of special doctrines outside of Scripture. And, and this is like, you know, clearly you could you could say that emphasizing spe- special doctrines within Scripture. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> could be. I mean, there's a lot of damaging stuff within Scripture. relative yeah. to whether or not you identify as a Christian or not. Inappropriate or odd loyalty to leaders, uh, obsess, obsession with leaders, obsession with maintaining power structures within an organization, yes. dishonoring or compromising the family unit yes. um, or a reorganization of the family unit within a cult. So, so many times, you know, we have moms, dads, brothers, sisters, cousins that make up our family unit. And a lot of times in cults, people will be asked to 
come outside of those. To break or, those units. Or will be introduced to a unit that they are told transcends family bonds and family ties together that they must be loyal to. I think that there is no simple answer yeah. to this because we are confronted by groupthink everywhere. Yeah. We are confronted by the potential for harm everywhere because we're human. And, and so is religion itself mm-hmm. a cult? Um, it depends on how you define cult. It depends on who's who's practicing it. And it depends on who's practicing it. Are aspects of it a destructive cult? Absolutely. Mm. And, you know, I had, I hope my partner doesn't mind me bringing this up, but I had this really interesting conversation with John, my partner. John is a former Jesuit. He is a former Jesuit novice. Mm. And the Jesuits are considered like the Marines of Catholicism. Mm. Very intense spiritual practices, silent retreats for a month or two at a time, just in total silence. He was homeless for several weeks where they gave him $20, put him on a bus and said, you're going to meet us at the other side of the country. Good luck. Mm. And it was the spiritual exercise of actually being the poor yeah, and surviving that way and having nothing. And, you know, talking to John about his experiences in the Jesuits and the extreme asceticism, the extreme, the vows of poverty and chastity and obedience, where you make a vow of obedience to your superiors. Yeah. And, and there, that to me sounds like a cult. And I, I brought it up with, I brought that up with him and he said, well, you know, the thing is though, at any point you could say uncle, basically, you could you could say yeah. your safe word and they'll let you go. Yeah. And that is an important aspect of healthy religion. And monastic orders today have that incorporated into it. And, and so the ability <clears throat> to say, no, this is too much is important. And so John doesn't feel like he was in a cult. But I am always confronted with that question. And, and that was an interesting conversation that well, I had the, with John. There are some signs of a cult that really make you look around at what's happening right now within our country and scratch your head because yes. they're so similar uh one of the one of the telltale signs that people use when deciding whether or not they have a corrupt leader or are involved in a cult is that anything that the group or leader does can be justified no matter harsh how harsh or harmful it is to other people out, yes. w- within or outside of the group we're particularly seeing this happen within Christian circles. It seems like two or three times a week, there's a new sexual abuse allegation that comes out from someone in a position of power. Oh, absolutely. And there are, it's almost always followed by a group of people who immediately start excusing that leader or that group's behavior in some way, instead of being able to, and that, that's, that actually is one of the signs that you are exhibiting cult-like behavior. And, And I think that there is a cult surrounding Trump Mm, that's interesting. I, I, I think that there is cult-like behavior, and not just cult-like behavior, but destructive cult-like behavior surrounding Trump. No, you know what Trump really reminds me of is L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology. <laughs> I mean, just but far less creative, far less creative, <laughs> far less creative. And, you know, just an obvious charlatan, just an obvious con man. It, it, couldn't be more transparent. And yet people just worship him. So I see a lot of destructive cult-like behavior in that. One thing that I do want to add is I feel like we're all very skeptical of cults and trance-like states. 
And I think that skepticism and fear has to be tempered some because I actually think in the right context, being part of a community that believes similar things is powerful and wonderful and beautiful. And that Mm. trance-like states and hypnotic states can be some of the most profound experiences of our lives. Mm. I think... Or meditative states. Meditative maybe, states. If that and, bodes well in someone's ears. Yeah, if, if that strikes you better. But ultimately what they are are trance states. We're right to be skeptical. Right. We are absolutely right to be skeptical. But, you know, sometimes I worry that because of that skepticism, we miss the riches of being in a like-minded community, and we miss the the overwhelming joys of being in trance-like states. Yeah, I think I think that's a good way of kind of weeding out the the corruptive parts of it and looking at yeah. some of the positive things of community or aspects of community. So, well, I was going to say one yes, of the, one yes. of the things that that really does scare me is that one of the signs of a cult is that the individual identity, the group the leader and or God as distinct and separate categories of existence become increasingly blurred. Oh, that's an important right. one. So what are you reading this from, by the way? It looks like you're you're reading off. Culteducation.com. Okay. It is giving you these warning signs. Okay. Um, awesome. Yeah. So they're they seem like a pretty nice resource for <laughs> yes. for helping people um disengage with yes. with cults that they find themselves in. And I can say firsthand that I've seen that play. I still see that play out where mm. people like there there are specific Christian groups that however well-meaning they are and maybe even to their own I I, I don't know not being able to understand the situation that they're in or not knowing mm. how deep they are into it have these lines blurred. Yes. Already. Between between what their pastor is doing between the leader right. and God and then what was the third the thing? The leader and God and them. And them. Yes, that that's and, a very, and individual very identity, point. and all of a sudden you start having people believe that whatever agenda they've they've subscribed to somehow is a holy one. You know, there's a there's a great example of this actually. I've been doing some reading on Elevation Church and the possibility that they're a cult. Because one thing that I want to do down the road is is do some little investigations of mega churches and and attend some of their services and just report back about about the crazy. So. Stephen Furtick, who is the pastor of Elevation, the founding pastor, I'm not going to say that he is a cult leader, and I'm not going to say that Elevation Church is a cult, but just a few examples of cult-like behavior in Christian communities. For example, I'm reading this from religionnews.com, an article (laughs) by Jonathan Merritt. The church website once declared that Elevation is built on the vision God gave Pastor Stephen and charged members to, quote, aggressively defend our unity and that vision. Yep. The church also produced an infographic that stated the following, we serve a lead pastor who seeks and hears from God. We serve a lead pastor we can trust. We serve a lead pastor who goes first. Right. All of this referring to Stephen Furtick. Right. Perhaps the, okay, and, and continuing with this article by Jonathan Merritt, perhaps the creepiest story about Furtick's celebrity culture was a Sunday school coloring book that Elevation produced for its children children's ministry. One coloring page depicts Furtick with the caption, Elevation Church is built on the vision God gave Pastor Stephen. Right. We will protect our unity in supporting his vision. Right. Indoctrinating kids with images and messages that discourage... And this is like a coloring book. Yeah. Uh, and you can see this image when you go to this page, and I'll... I'll 
put this uh, article in the notes. It, it's it's very clearly a personality driven exactly. church, and, and I, I feel like I've I've seen those pop up before, and I've actually tried to pay really close attention to what has been happening over the past few years with elevation. And I and I would say this because I I'm clearly can admit to maybe being a little bit biased about this. I would I would do research on that church and then I would go to a site like culteducation.com and yes. look at their warning signs and decide for yourself. As I read this and and in my experience with Elevation Church and in many of my friends who have worked there in many different capacities. Mm. I have many of them who have walked away going, you know, I can't really do anything but scratch my head because it doesn't really add up. Yes. There, it, it feels like a, it's, it's very personality driven. It's very protective of Stephen. Mm. Um, and, and again, I, I know that I also have friends who are like, Matt, don't talk shit about Elevation. Like they do incredible things. Have you not seen all the awesome things that they do for people? I'm not saying that they don't. I'm not saying that they don't serve well, their community. On that point, one of the most important things to remember is that these organizations are never absolutely 100% evil or 100% good. Right. And just an extreme example of that, the the great godfather of cults is Jonestown. Well, the People's Temple was this incredibly <clears throat> socially oriented, justice oriented, racially integrated community yeah. that did incredible work yeah. for race relations. In their cities, they cared for the elderly, they cared for the poor, they did truly extraordinary work, and then it ended in a mass suicide. Right. Okay, that is why we have to be on our guard, because so very often, <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. so very often these organizations do good stuff. Yeah, I think it's hard to, it would be hard to debate that they don't exhibit oh, un- yeah. unhealthy hero worship behavior. And, and you know, talking <clears throat> talking to Chris Shelton, who is in the Sea Org, which is the clergy of Scientology, right. he was in it for many years. He was in it for, I don't know, many, many years. And he said that he does not regret the good that he did for people. He know he said that he knows he helped marriages. Yeah. He knows that he helped people get through issues. And he doesn't regret that. But that also does not overshadow the deep harm that Scientology does. And so I guess the I guess the answer is Christianity can have cults and that all human society lives on a vague spectrum with the perpetual threat of harm and the right. perpetual threat of being a destructive cult and that's just human nature. Well and the other thing too is like it really is up to you to recognize unhealthy behavior and try to be unbiased. <laughs> yes. Bit, you know, try to just be very, I don't know, as objective as you can about the situation that you find yourself in. Yeah. Anyway, I, I'm not a cult expert. I'm not. Neither am yeah, I. We're just kind of pontificating on this tweet. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, there was another one. There was another tweet, if if we're cool to move yeah, on. Yeah, let's move on. By Jamie on Twitter that says, how do you maintain relationships with non-doubters? without being cast as lost or getting into arguments, especially with family and close friends. Um, I, I think that's interesting because I I feel like I kind of have that with my family or, or, or with a, a lot of my family, not the entire <laughs> not the entire thing. Well, that's good. Yeah, it's like I have certain beliefs about Christianity that they don't have 
or I have to have certain disbeliefs about Christianity that they don't have. And, and I think that I, I run across a lot of people all the time because we were in a band that people thought was a Christian band for so many years. And so they're constantly, they were constantly asking me sort of to defend my faith or giving me these spiritual tests that they mm. would put me through socially, right. you know, like, what's the Lord doing in your life today? And t- tell me something you're struggling with. Let me pray for you about something, brother. Just like, I, I just, I really feel God's telling me that. I don't know. It's like, all you're, of it, it made me feel weird. You're like, please don't touch me. <laughs> right. Cause I'm like, you please don't, don't lay your hands on me. <laughs> you don't know me. Right. So like, I, I think I just got into, I got into the, the mode of just being okay with people assuming that I'm lost. Me too. I, people, I, I know that when people hear what I have to say about Christianity or where I am in my journey with Christianity or spirituality or humanity, that they're going to look at me and think, I don't think this adds up with what I believe, so now you're an outsider. And I think you start walking that line so long that you're like, I would much rather go to sleep at night okay with myself than I would be worried about, I don't know, being being accepted by everyone, which I, I know is hard. <clears throat> it's particularly hard whenever it's your family or close friends that you that you find yourself in these situations with. So if that's like something that you're that you're struggling with i I, i've i've been there i understand it's not it's not an easy thing to to walk through to to know that there's something between you and someone else my attitude is it doesn't matter Mm. it just doesn't matter you know because i mean i think it's easy to say it doesn't matter it's easy to say easier but it doesn't make it easier but i do think it makes it easier when we ask ourselves are we trying to control the beliefs of others Mm. And when I let go of other people and trying to subtly manipulate them or get them to agree with me, suddenly whether they agree with me or not just doesn't matter. You're both trying to feel more comfortable around each other. Exactly. And, and you know, one thing that I have learned is if I just let people be who they are, it's fine. It, yeah. And also what I have found is that there, there are, I have a lot of friends who disagree with me either on being gay or which is admittedly is a pretty fundamental disagreement or they disagree with my approach to faith but our friendship is predicated on respect mm. and i think if there isn't a foundation of respect within our relationships it isn't going to work i i think that this is just a principle of relationships in general you know more than loving john more than having a romance with john i respect him mm. as a man i deeply respect him as a person and that means that navigating disagreements or conflicts is undergirded by that respect. And that's true for friendships as well. I have a lot of friends who disagree with me, but they respect me. And that means that we can meet together as equals, fully knowing that we don't agree with one another. If there is that respect in a relationship, I think it's easier. Yeah, I think whatever gets your attention gets you. Exactly. Like, if, like sometimes you can salvage a relationship by simply choosing to focus on something different. Yes, exactly. And and so, you know, two things. Well, okay, so I have I have three thoughts on this. One is it ultimately doesn't matter if we <laughs> try to control other people and their beliefs. Right, which is the wise but the easy answer. It's the easy yes. way out. <clears throat> and that I just have to tell myself that's who they are. I'm not going to control them. I have no control over what other people think of me. Right. And that's tough, but 
that's what I have to come back to constantly. Yeah. In the case of healthy relationships, I have to ask myself, is this relationship based on respect? Mm. And, you know, I, I have family members who deeply disagree with me, but who deeply respect me and I deeply respect them. We may never see eye to eye, but we can come together as equals and reason together and and enjoy each other's company. And, and I have lots of friends from Montreal College who are also like that. And that to me is a sustainable friendship. I mean, think about all the friendships in your life or even the relationships that you have with family. They're not predicated on who's right. No. They're predicated on... On, on love and mutual and respect, love exactly and what you're saying. Respect. So sometimes I feel like that's kind of a litmus test. It is. Yeah. It is totally a litmus test for friendship. Yeah. And then the final, <laughs> my my final thought, my third thought on this is to just have a lot of confidence in your, in if you have arrived at your conclusion with humility and integrity, to have confidence in that and to communicate that. And so when people confront me on stuff, the most I can say is look, I'm sorry, I respect you and I respect where you're coming from. But with my personal experience and with the evidence that I have been given, I think that what I believe is the best understanding of it at this point. Now, I have limited evidence and I am fallible. So my tune will probably change. I can always be wrong, but I don't think I am wrong because this is the best I can do. Right. When I'm presented with something new, then hope I hope that I will have the intellectual humility yeah. and integrity to change. And to just be very clear about that position of integrity, be very clear about what intellectual integrity means to you. And if they can't accept it, then so be it. But if they can, that can actually be the catalyst for mutual respect. I think that's a very well thought out response, Stephen. And if you ever find yourself in a situation with someone and you just can't come to terms with them and you're not really sure how to salvage the relationship. Buy them a drink. Fuck, what did I do? <laughs> You're fine. I'm sorry. You just I, knocked over a microphone. Did I break your mic? No, it's it, you can't break it. It's indestructible. Yeah, okay, it's that's totally good. indestructible. So anyway, I hope, I hope that was great. I'm going to quit saying uh, people's names just in case they want to remain anonymous. Well, no, they're, no you say their names. <laughs> you because, do say their names because they appreciate that. Well, say, say their names because they appreciate it. And also, I have 9,800 followers. And... They posted it in front of <laughs> nine thousand people. Their their covers kind of already blown. The covers blown. All right, all right, cool. Yeah. So so I I thought this one was really great too. I promise I'm going to let you read one. No, second, this, this is great. I'm I'm going to bogart your podcast here for a second. You're welcome to. Um. So this one's from Dolores, uh, who says, "At what point does doubt harden and crystallize into unbelief?" I think I reached that point long ago. Not sure. That's a really great question. It really is. It's different for everyone. I think the line is moving. Yeah, it, it's a constantly moving line. I feel like somehow I've been bitten by the by the I've caught this the the faith uh, super bug. <laughs> you know, like like this. <laughs> bug that is just resistant to antibiotics with all the hand sanitizer that you've with used this season the <laughs> hand sanitizer <laughs> and you know it's just resistant to all the right. antibiotics you throw at it somehow against all odds and against all reason i'm still somehow yep. a christian and you know people ask me why the most honest answer is i don't know and people want something more profound than that and i can't offer it to them other than Maybe it's a Stockholm syndrome or I have a genuine love for 
the person of Christ. And that person of Christ has genuinely gotten me through my trials and tribulations as a queer person in the South. And that archetype of Christ, that story of Christ, real or imagined, has shaped how I navigate life. And being able to see that and experience that means that I can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But that seems like such a weak answer in comparison to the great harm that I have experienced and continue to experience. And it won't, that won't work for many people. Uh, Some people just need to leave. And so I feel like there is a grieving process for faith. And we go through, when we finally accept that Mm -hmm. we no longer believe and just choose to move on with our life, I I think that point is different for everyone. I, I feel like the best way to describe what I've experienced is that there was a point where I I really was, I really got nervous about all the doubt that I had. And I was worried that it would crystallize into unbelief. Me too. And I think the longer that I've lived, the more I've seen that ebb and flow. Yes. So, so often there there are things that I used to doubt fervently that I now have a very open and soft heart to. And there are things that I used to believe, you know, and and not pay attention to. Like I, I used to believe vehemently. And now I don't. Now I, I just don't. And and I think that there's there's that constant like push and pull. And I think it it's part of the human experience for the pendulum to swing back and forth. And I think I've seen my pendulum swing back and forth so often that I'm more I put more faith in the pendulum than I do on what side it's hitting. Yes, absolutely. It's um I think the word crystallize is interesting mm. because I think I personally try to resist any crystallization Mm. because that to me means that I have stopped growing. My views have stopped growing. I Mm. I don't know if I want to crystallize into anything because crystallization to me speaks of brittleness. When when I, when I saw crystallize, I thought this is what pain does to doubt. Yes. Yes. And you know, I think the way we avoid that crystallization is just radical honesty. Mm. and a radical compassion. We we tend to have this good dog, bad dog mentality towards ourselves where, you know, we go to church, we pray, good dog, good dog, you know, <laughs> you get a bone. <laughs> but then you doubt or you you do something that is not very Christian. I wish, you know what I wish? Mm. That doubt was rewarded. Me too. I Because I think doubt is indicative of critical thought. And it is, yeah, and it's indicative of growth. There's no growth without I doubt. Wish that there were, I wish that Christians were known for that. I wish Me that too. when you doubted Christianity, Christians patted you on the back and said, now you're using your head. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, you know, one of my favorite quotes of all time is from Thomas Jefferson, where in a letter he says, doubt with boldness even the existence of God. For if there be one, he must more surely approve of the homage of reason than that of blindfolded fear. Followed quickly by the legality of slavery. <laughs> Followed quickly by the legality of slavery. Exactly. Um, so... Oh, goodness, what was I saying? Crystallization of doubt. Yes, and the answer, I think, is radical. On And, and I, when I say the answer, yeah. I mean the answer for me has mm-hmm. been radical honesty about where I am and 
great compassion yeah. because we have this good dog, bad dog mentality towards ourselves where we do something good that the church approves of, good dog, you know, yeah. whereas then we do something quote unquote bad, we doubt, so on and so forth, bad dog that needs to be punished yeah. or pushed out. But I also think doubt is a really positive thing. Exactly. Because when you well, start to doubt like corrupt power structures or you start then, to doubt. Exactly. Yeah. Well, well, and so compassion though leads us, genuine compassion leads us beyond the bo- the false binary of good dog, bad dog. Yeah. Compassion shows us that that whole good dog, bad dog mentality is actually- It's totally, damaging. It's damaging <laughs> and is totally false. When we are honest about our doubt, accept that we are feeling it and accept the pain that it gives us and then behold that pain with compassion. Wrap it up in this warm compassion for ourselves. That's when it can grow and change. When we cast it outside of our compassion, Mm. that is when it turns into something terrifying. That is when, when we cast it out of our sight, that is when it turns into a monster. I'm so glad that you bring up the importance of compassion because there was one of these tweets, uh, I believe it was from Mary Brewer. It says, how does one deal with the judgmental attitudes from other believers if one is a member of a faith community? Walking with Jesus, even in doubt about some things, is manageable on a personal basis, but others can be cruel about religious beliefs sometimes. I thought this was interesting because I, I it, without fail, Everyone that I have met who was cruel about a religious belief that they had has had something terrible happen to them. Yes. And they're afraid of being wrong about that belief. Yes. Or that, or that belief it might be the thing that they're holding on to to try to make sense of something that happened to them. Either way, cruelty begets cruelty. And so when I feel like I'm mistreated by someone or I see someone who has just such an angry fervor about something that seems unwarranted or unjustifiable, oftentimes that that stems from some pain that they have that has happened to them. And threat begets cruelty mm, because, yeah. you know, our brain tends to process threats to our worldview and mm. threats to our physical life right. as the same thing yeah. on a sub subconscious level. Yeah. And, you know, I if we aren't aware of how our brain works, that our brain does respond to threats to our worldview with anger, with fire, with passion, with irrationality. If we don't know that about ourselves, we are going to assume that we are innately rational and that all of our <laughs> anger is justified, right? Right, which is why and, compassion is so important. And it's, yes. it doesn't make any sense that that when you're being, you know, accosted or someone is being uh, really cruel about a religious belief that they have or specifically within your faith community, the the last thing on your mind is how can I be compassionate to this person? But it really is such a great diffuser. <laughs> it is. You know, one of the things that helps me is to look at people and try to assess the amount, the level of pain that they are in. Mm. Because we all experience pain. Pain is kind of this universal thing. And so when I see someone attack me, and I'm not always able to do this because it's hard and it's a challenge, but one thing that I find helpful is to look at that person and try to see their pain and try to see Mm -hmm. how they are suffering. And usually what I find is that they are in this flurry of panic 
and panic is always painful. Mm. And I'm I'm able to respond more compassionately. Sometimes the most compassionate thing is to just walk away. Let's see. Let me read that question one more time. How does one deal with the judgmental attitudes from other believers if one is a member of a faith community? Walking with Jesus, even in doubt about some things, is a manage is manageable on a personal basis, but others can be cruel about their religious beliefs sometimes. So I'm always walking this line. And I don't know if there's ever a perfect balance. Sometimes the best thing is to just walk away. Other times is to compassionately challenge and to say, well, no, and here's why. Mm. One metaphor that really helps me, and this is a very controversial metaphor. Oh, God. And <laughs> a lot of a Do lot tell. of my Christian listeners may not be able to track with me on this, but let's pretend for a moment that the snake in Eden was actually a compassionate figure who had in mind the good of Adam and Eve. And <laughs> the snake compassionately through reason yeah. and through kindness. I feel like you're brainstorming a new History Channel special. <laughs> I am. Right I totally am. I'm on like ancient aliens right now. <laughs> Let's say Eden is this hegemonic world controlled by a father who cuts off reason and knowledge. Because what's the tree that's forbidden? It's the knowledge of good the and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, yeah. And what if the snake, he, he finds a little opening and the snake says, wouldn't it be interesting to just try it, to just see what's beyond this world? Wouldn't it be interesting to see how that tastes? You could be like a god and have greater knowledge have the knowledge of good and evil. Knowledge is innately good. And that's almost what, in this version of the myth, the snake is saying is that knowledge is innately good. And by the way, this flipped myth is kind of the basis of the satanic temple and modern day Satanism, where they see religion as in, you know, in the literary metaphorical God mm. as this oppressive religious authority that restricts knowledge, and then Lucifer and the snake as this compassionate figure who cares for the suffering right. and cares for these, these poor beings who are oppressed by God and don't even know it. And the snake yearns for them to have greater knowledge. And so the snake finds this little opening and compassionately draws them to the tree. And so in this vision, it's my job to be the snake. In this vision, it's my job to graciously welcome people into a more scientific understanding of reality and to question their biases, to question their authority, to question what they've always assumed to be true. I think that's a really interesting take on that story because I feel like you could also have the take that, you know, it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's basically a tree of judgment, mm. of, of knowing the difference. Yes. It was like you create your own prison of judgment by partaking from this and assuming you can tell the difference always. Yes. Yeah. That's a good like that, framing. That might be the other side of that That's coin. a great framing. And, and you know, uh, kind of going back to our discussion of story, mythic story, that just shows how you can, it, it's almost like these mythic stories are more like a gem, with all these different sides and you can turn the gem 
and turn the gym and, and see maybe throughout a different th- the facet. course of your human experience, you play every single character in the story. Absolutely. <laughs> At some point, yes. or you identify with every Absolutely. single character. And so my job is to, to my best ability when Christians are ugly, are confrontational, is to always be kind mm. and to offer people a safe place to question where mm. they feel secure enough to question because, you know, my friend Danielle said that doubt can feel like the movie Gravity, <laughs> where you're just lost in space with no up or down. And it's a, this deeply terrifying experience. And when you're in that place, you're going to lash out. And my job is to help people feel secure enough to ask those really hard, terrifying, overwhelming questions. You also have to wonder, were they chastised for their doubt? At some point in their journey to the point where they're so afraid of having doubt Mm. and they double down so cruelly Mm. on the beliefs that they do have and they become so insistent on not listening to anything else and and on being right. It's like, I, I don't know why we're not nurturing doubt. I don't know why we don't feed doubt and talk about it. Yeah. You know, I I learned a long time ago that I have to cultivate like a doubt garden, <laughs> and that of course you did. Yes, like in ch- I had to. I have to think of it as like a, this this garden full of what would originally have been weeds, right? And if I don't cultivate it, then it will overrun and invade. And so I have to actually care for it. If I deny it. Then it will be. Then my faith will be destroyed. It requires your attention. But if I allow myself to actually cultivate doubt and care for it and take it seriously, then my faith can actually live. Yeah. When people are cruel, I think it's also just a matter of setting up boundaries. I've had to learn that I don't owe people anything, mm. and I think that we are born codependent in the Christian world, where our center of gravity is unhealthily centered around other people, the Christian community. And when they are unhealthy, we when they attack us, we might just need to disconnect. And that's okay. Trust is earned. You know, trust we we give people, we should give people the trust that they deserve. And if people do not demonstrate that we can trust them with our journey, we don't have to give them that trust. That's okay. That doesn't mean they're bad people. I don't remember any account of Jesus in the Bible beating anyone over the head with truth. Yeah. I believe that he provided metaphor and literary devices and his own love and benevolence to people to usher in what it was that he was trying <laughs> what he was trying to share. Yeah. So we have some other questions on Facebook. This is from Patrick Gothman. He was a guest on the show. He did this the celibacy, gay celibacy episode with me. And this is a question similar to one we've already answered, but it it's a slight variation. How do you manage relationships with people with whom deep and abiding faith was the foundation of your friendship? Mm. And this is this is a hard one for me because I have several friendships like this that have just kind of vanished. Yeah. And I don't think you get to be our age and keep all of them intact. Oh, yeah. There are especially some guys from college who, you know, the foundation of our friendship was our shared faith. Yeah. And um, part of me asks how healthy that is. 
You know, if you don't have interests outside of the faith together, that doesn't seem like a very stable friendship to me, honestly. You know, if you don't have an affinity for other things outside of your religion, I'm not sure if it'll work. But I've struggled with this because I have lost friendships. And I've had to grieve for those friendships because these are people who I genuinely love. And um, I don't have a very coherent answer to that. I don't know how to manage a relationship with with friends like that. I think it's hard when you have a relationship that you learn can't weather the thing that's currently holding it together. Yeah. Or when it becomes apparent that the only thing holding it together is simply a shared interpretation of a religious belief or mm. a text. <laughs> yeah, that's that's hard. I feel like that's the harder thing. Is, it is hard yeah. because, you know, these people also provide a sense of home. Mm. And when you lose that sense of tribal identity, that is very painful because we're social animals. We're wired to take that very seriously. It is really painful. But this also reminds me, like, all the great stories, you know, like the hero's journey. Yes. Retold time and time and time again is all about leaving the tribe. It is. Absolutely. <laughs> to save the tribe, you have to leave it. Yes. Um, you have to find that elixir. You have to seek out magical help. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes there's a denial of the call. You know, there's crossing the threshold. There's all of these things that we're all living out in life on micro levels with all of our relationships. Absolutely. Constantly. And, and the reforming them and reformatting them. And it's hard to see in context sometimes, but for me, it's healthy to kind of zoom out and just say, you know what, maybe this relationship that I have with this person might've only been based on this one thing, but I don't know what that's going to look like three years from now. Yeah. And if I lose it, what, what did I really lose if I gained an understanding yeah. of them and of myself at the same time? I've also seen those things come full circle. I've seen people that like, that denied you know, the the things they were interested in that would have brought them together mm. in the name of Christianity. And then once they had kind of like left that, they kind of came back together again. So what I'm hearing is that kind of just the lesson here is that relationships just change. I think just that period. You I know, think they're fluid. Relationships yeah. are fluid. They're constantly going to change. Yeah. I had one experience in college where, which was really hard and illuminating for me, where one of my very best friends, I was going through a pretty rough season and it was actually the, I would say the first big visitation from doubt. It was the first big, like existential angst, (laughs) college existential. Grim Reaper knocking on your door. Grim Reaper knocking on my door. And I tried to be as honest as I could about this. And my friend could not handle this. Mm. And she basically said, I really looked up to you and I don't anymore. Mm. And I don't know if we can be friends anymore. It's like, oh, that hurt. So she considered that this belief that you held was also a virtue. And yes. somehow if you don't hold the belief, the virtue is vanquished and, as and, well. And she couldn't respect me anymore. Yeah, that's and, hard. Oh man, that hurt. And, and it hurt because she was a very genuine friend. Yeah. And companion. Yeah. And losing her was kind of the first lesson in, oh, that like things are at stake here. And that was a hard lesson for me. Yeah. I don't think that there's any way for it not to be hard. I yeah. think we just have to let it be hard. There's no easy way through this. Mm. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. So another question from Bridget Taylor. Have you ever walked past a church or even just a Christian-themed area, camp with signs, a billboard, etc., and had to just stop? If so, what were the emotions at that time? (laughs) (laughs) And had to just stop. (laughs) Like, just stop in the middle of the road and back up traffic? Preferably not. (laughs) Um, I assume she means... Like, just stop and process the feelings that it gave you. Like, are there are there things about Christianity that are just super toxic? Yeah, to there's you? there's a church at the end of our road, and they they constantly change their sign oh, to no. something that they believe to be clever. Oh no! Um, oh god! I think, <laughs> I think the last one I remember is what's the best vitamin for a Christian? B one. <laughs> Oh God! Yeah, they they post those kinds of things. There's one. There's one by my work that says, um, "Last fall, it said autumn leaves, Jesus it stays." <laughs> and for as 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 much as I love puns, I also think you thought that this was supposed to be representative of something like very sacred and you have sort of like (laughs) exactly you you've reduced uh how you want to present yourself to the world in in a pun on a sign next to your pastor's name it's just these conflicting messages there's exactly you said exactly what i was going to say you know like like when i go to a fast food joint that's run by christians like cookout and there's a fucking Bible verse on the on the burger or or whatever or on I the shake. I love cookout. I love cookout too. I'm not bashing cookout, but I see that and I'm like, I think I have a greater respect for scripture than you do. Than to put it on the than bottom to, of a cup. Than to put it on the bottom of a fucking milkshake. I and there is this sense of. <laughs> But I, scripture holds the milkshake in place while you lift the cup upside down. It's basically a Dairy Queen situation. <laughs> Good point. Yes. Um, That's the power of Christ. And, and so there, there is that weird, or like testaments, yeah. the mints with little oh, oh, scripture yeah. passages. Oh, yeah. There's this sense of denigrating scripture. It's Christianity me. married with capitalism. Exactly. It's, yeah. But that I don't think that quite addresses what she's talking. No, of course not. We're totally off base. We're totally off base. But (laughs) I was actually thinking about this question on the drive here to the studio. It isn't a Christian thing. It's actually a film. It's a critique of Christian culture, but the movie Saved, that comedy. Have you seen Oh my God, it's amazing. I cannot watch it. (gasps) I cannot watch it. Too close to home. It is too painful Mm. because I was actually a gay guy in a conservative Christian high school. And when I watch it, it devastates me so much. I just can't do it. Yeah. I just can't think about it yeah. because it hurts too much. They got it right. For people who don't know what we're talking about, definitely watch the movie Saved and you will get a good perspective <laughs> on what it was like. And, and I wish it was I wish it was an exaggeration. It's amazing. It's kind of like Mean Girls for Christians. Exactly. Yeah, yeah that's a great way to put it. That's one thing that, you know, I watched it twice in two different situations. Yeah. And each time it just fucked me up so much because it yeah. brought up so many painful memories. I feel like Catholicism, I have I have very, very deep resentments with Catholicism. Mm. I almost converted to, to Catholicism and in many ways I'm more Catholic than I am Protestant at this mm. point. But I have deep, deep resentments because there was this deep trauma of 
being gay in the church and just feeling like I was being relegated to this subhuman class while being perpetually told that isn't what was actually happening. With, that, within Catholicism. Within, within Catholicism. Which and, is interesting with all of the uh, priests doing little kids. Yeah, it, well, and, and that's the other thing, is that a priest, a pedophile priest, who molested literally hundreds of children over the course of his decades-long <laughs> career, can serve the can can perform the Eucharist every day. Mm. And the church knew. I mean, yeah. the church knew that that that's what these people There's were doing. There have been countless documentaries and, and yeah, stories exactly. that have come okay. out about and, this. And yeah. then people, someone like me, who is partnered, would be denied the Eucharist mm. because I am in a loving, healthy, committed gay relationship. And you, you think that's true of the Catholic Church now? Oh, yeah. That you would be denied the Eucharist? Oh, yeah. Well, it depends on the parish, but the thing is, the Catholic Church has core teachings about homosexuality. Mm -hmm. The teachings of the Church and the Catechism is that homosexual people are innately— oh, what's the word? There, there's this term, um, innately broken— yeah, I feel like I've heard that, you that, know, that thrown um, around. It took me a long time to to deal with that. I had to retreat completely from Catholicism because I also, and part of what made it so hard was that I loved it so much. Well, I loved and the, the, the history. subtext of that being that if by your own teaching, all humanity is broken and you're singling us out, you're basically saying we're like double broken? Innately disordered. That's the term. Right. It, okay. Um, yeah. Intrinsically disordered. Okay. That's that's the term. My sexuality is intrinsically disordered. And I'm sorry, if that's what you believe about gay people, you're not going to treat them with equal dignity because equal, separate but equal is a myth. Mm. It doesn't work. And so I just, my experience in Catholicism left me with deep resentments and it's taken me a long time to get over that. Catholic imagery, imagery of the saints, Catholic books, books by the saints, you know, and, and I, it just burned too much. It was a rage that was too deep where I was like, okay, I have to disengage. And, and I know that that's unfortunate because there's a lot of great stuff. I couldn't read Richard Rohr because he was Catholic. I couldn't read uh, Henry Nouwen because yeah. he was Catholic. I mean, great spiritual teachers. I, I couldn't read Father James Martin, who is, he's a Jesuit, just one of the most wonderful, gay-affirming, progressive guys, and he's fantastic. Well, I, I, can't, I couldn't engage with him, and in a lot of ways, I still can't engage with him just because he's Catholic. And I know mm. that that sounds awful, but that's how deep the wound goes. And so when when people come up to me and say, Stephen, I can't, I just can't do this Christian thing. I can't listen to your podcast because it's mm. it's so related to Christianity. I, I It just hurts too much. I'm like, I totally get it. Do what you need to do. Yeah. On the other hand, on the flip side of that, I feel like I have moments of the opposite experience. And just an example of this, this will sound really, really, really funny and stupid. So the other day I was watching God's Not Dead 2 with my roommates. Oh, no. I was... <laughs> Please tell me it was in a MST3K capacity. Yes. I mean, okay. we, we watched it. I, I was not emotionally... Because those movies are just too bad. I was not emotionally prepared for how bad it was. Yeah. I literally felt like I was being bludgeoned to death yep. by how terrible it was. Yep. I, I mean, yeah. And, and I, I want to have Say Goodnight Kevin on to specifically talk about... He would love that. Yes. I'm, I'm going to... 
I especially want to have Say Goodnight Kevin on to yes. talk about terrible Christian movies like God's Not Dead. But, <laughs> you know, in the midst of that experience of being nauseated and bludgeoned to death by yeah. just how atrocious it was, I was, I was really surprised by this moment when a character opens their Bible. And you see this character open their Bible. And when I saw that, I immediately had this physical sense of warmth and security wash over me. I was like, whoa, <laughs> where did this come from? Feelings. But, but it, it's that association that I have with the Bible. Yeah. As like something good's supposed to come out of it. Something's good supposed to come out of it. And that stuff is very deep. Even while I have deep resentments and even while I have these these deep struggles with the Bible, just that that scene of that character opening the Bible and reading the Bible, I was like, holy fuck. This sense of <laughs> warmth and peace that just washed over me. It was like this. I was like Pavlov's one of Pavlov's dogs. Like <laughs> But with and, and just realizing even now how deeply programmed I yeah. am, how deep this stuff goes, mm-hmm. how deeply programmed I am to respond positively to imagery like that, and that I have the 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 opposite experience of what we were talking about, where it's like that too, where where I'll see something or hear something, and there's this deep sense of warmth and security, and, and it's both. It's both of those things. See, that's that's so weird because I I feel like when I see someone open a Bible, I immediately start to feel very complicated inside. Because I feel like whatever they're about to say, <laughs> it's going to be complicated. I, I'm, yes. I'm going to feel very complicatedly about it. I'm going to have a memory where somebody took that verse completely out of context and used it and to discriminate me. someone or guilted me into feeling a certain way. Yes. And... I feel like I I look back on that time in my life where I was a youth group kid and I remember fondly the human interactions that I had, like playing in a band, you know, learning music and learning guitar together and listening to the same bands and mm. having a place that I could always look forward to on Wednesdays and Sundays because I had no friends at school. Like I remember those things with warmth, but there is such a weird um, and I don't know if the person who who asked this question on Facebook can relate to this at all, but there's just this weird grayness over it. It's almost like a discoloration of all of those sort of religious symbols and um, mm. monuments <laughs> Yeah, that I just feel so conflicted about it because I don't, because I, I feel like I've moved so far past where that is. And I don't mean like past it, like, oh, I'm so much smarter. And I, I know, I just mean in my life, I'm so far removed from it. Like I remember very clearly walking away slowly over mm. the course of many years from those kinds of establishments and from a lot of the social hierarchies that came with those things. And yeah, things in within myself yeah. from deep seated things that happened while I was in church that happened to me. Mm. Like, I feel like I, to understand it, I had to walk away from all of it. And even to this day, it still feels very gray. What kind of things that happened? Oh, no, I just mean like... Just in, I, I know that they're probably small and subtle things. Oh, yeah, That just yeah. build like, up over sm- time. Small things like seeing the way that a youth pastor would treat his wife at home. Right. Or knowing that someone was being sexually inappropriate. Or seeing the way that 
that a pastor would treat the people that that were were in his employ, basically, Mm. to see the to see power being wielded in such an irresponsible way, to see families destroyed and broken, to see people use the Bible to cover up, you know, things that were happening in the church. I mean, like we were talking about earlier, the the cult like tendencies. I think you can take anything beautiful and sacred and you can twist it so quickly and so easily. And I feel like it's much more in keeping with human nature to gravitate towards behaving that way. Yes. And taking something beautiful and making it terrible. Yes. Than it is to just be quiet and still and accept what's already beautiful. Yeah. 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 And all of that stuff builds up and builds up and builds up until finally you just break or you have to deal with it in some yeah, way. Yeah, now it's like we we passed that church sign. I think that the newest thing that they've posted on the sign is like tweet unto others as you would have others tweet unto you. And you have to imagine yourself like they, these people <laughs> have to be in a, in a room somewhere, like maybe in the fellowship hall <laughs> of uh-huh. the church. And they're like, we're going to get together the punniest thing to put on our sign, but it's going to be God honoring and it's going to be funny and people are going to pass it and they're going to think, <laughs> those are Christians, but they got a sense of humor and we'll check them out. It's like, I can already walk through <laughs> what's can, going on in their mind and what the thought process is. You can is. already hear the but conversation. I can already hear the conversation and I can already like see the pastor chuckling at himself for making that up I, <laughs> and everybody just applauding him, yes. you know, the hero worship. Yep. Like I, and, and that may not even be going on at all. Maybe they're like, they, they hired some 13 year old kid and they're like, be clever. <laughs> we'll put it on the side. I don't know. So we have one last question. How are we doing on time? We're good. We got time for one last question. Okay. Awesome. So we have one last question. This is from Caleb. How do we deal with the painful questions of an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God who allows such evil in this world? Related, why do people who intimately know, love, and worship this loving God we know so well commit acts of violence and hatred condoned by his word? These are my deep questions of chronic, painful, and at times overwhelming doubt. So I I think this last question is really just the fundamental question. I can offer this because I struggle with that too. Mm -hmm. I think that there there are many times when we say, in particular where within Christianity it's that, you know, God is all powerful. He's all knowing. He's in charge of everything. He can't not be in charge of everything because he's all powerful. I think that a lot of times we can suffer from a lack of definition in that. Depends on where you fall on this spectrum of belief, but I think many times it's easy to make the argument that God doesn't cause suffering, man causes suffering. And because I've never seen God do anything to someone, (laughs) I've only seen man do evil things to one another. Yeah. But I think we keep blaming God for the things that man does. Not to sound like that's a, a cop out of a, of an answer, no. But I I do feel like we somehow we we have no more proof that it's God's fault. We do have proof that it is man's fault because <laughs> we see people do this. So mm. you can either say, well, people need our people have to be responsible for themselves, and so therefore it must be their fault, or somehow like God made people terribly. So whenever people behave terribly and use poor judgment or become corrupt, it somehow is God's fault because he gave them the capacity for becoming corrupt. It, I feel like this kind of gets into the whole free will argument. Like, you know, did, how much free will does God give us or does mm-hmm. he? 
so yeah, but for me, I feel like I have come to peace with this idea that mm. it doesn't surprise me when man does shitty things to people. It doesn't surprise you when man is right. evil. And it doesn't necessarily mean that that God did that, especially if I, ha- I have the ability to go out and shoot people, to kill people, to murder people, to, to behave poorly to other people, and it's not God's fault if I do that. Right. It's my, it's my, my own will and my own volition that I take those actions. It also, it also depends on how we define God. True. You know, if we, which is why I really like the definition of God as the ground of being, mm. as, as the ultimate reality, as the foundational reality. Mm. And we don't necessarily have to ascribe personal attributes to that God. We can if we want to. Yeah. I, I think we run into instant issues with a personal God because kind of tangential to this is the question of miracles. Mm. When we assume that God can heal people or that miracles exist, that we immediately run into the question of why does he heal some people and not and others? not heal others. Yep. And so this is kind of a similar question because he, if he has the capacity to do miracles, then why doesn't he? And you know, in the case of AIDS, in the case of cancer, in the case of all kinds of horrible, debilitating aspects of being human. Or of the thousands of deaths that happen every day. Exactly. Why, if we assume God does miracles, why does he heal some and not others? That is assuming a personal God, the existence of a personal God. Mm. And I do think that that's an issue. I do think that that's a problem. And it does raise questions about God's justice for me. Which is why I prefer to see God as the ground of being, as ultimate reality, as the forces that created and sustain the universe, as uh, Science Mike says in that first or second axiom. Yeah. I don't relate much anymore to the idea of a personal God because a personal God is fraught with these ethical problems. Right. And suddenly, if if this is a personal god who can heal some who can heal someone but not other and just because that person appealed to him enough you know stroked his ego enough he healed that person I, is that really a god i want to serve and, and suddenly you know you don't know if you want to be friends with this personal god <laughs> this personal god suddenly seems like a jerk but if i take the concept of god out of the realm of the personal i can personally deal with that better i think that the older that i get the more i feel like the character of God is very complicated. Yes. Um, and, and I would base that on, on, a, on a lot of different things in my own experience in life. And I, I think that to, to assume that there is a God and that I somehow can understand all of him and how he works and what morality and ethicality is rooted in and is it a human construct? Are we born with it? Do we learn it? And I think you... You start asking yourself all these questions that that very quickly complicate the person of God. Yes. Um, Yeah. I also think that this is an incredibly important question to ask because even though we may never have a concrete answer, what the process of asking it, the gift that is and, and what it gives us in our capacity to go to uncomfortable places and think through really hard things, I think that in and of itself is enormously beneficial. Mm. And so I think no matter where we fall on the answer, we have to have the courage to ask the question. 
and uh, fully knowing that we may not have an answer, but we still have to have the courage to confront the question because what we get from the question is so good. And that is the capacity to, to think critically and boldly in in the face of difficult things. I, I think it's hard too when you grow up in the in the in a Christian upbringing and you hear these these points driven home that you know God only wants what's best for you and that it's his will, you know, he he, he will never do anything to to harm you. Yeah. <laughs> or that he always has your best interest in mind. Those things were hard yeah. for me. I think those things are hard if you're thinking about anybody other than yourself. Because there, there's you, even if you haven't had crazy shit happen to you in life, you know someone who has who totally has and who by all accounts is no different than you and didn't deserve what happened to them. Those answers that that they give you, they start to feel like a mockery. The plans to prosper you and not to harm you, <clears throat> I feel like appeal more to someone's idea of capitalism exactly. than, than it does to an idea of this is how the world actually works. Well, so I've had this experience where, where these trite answers that we receive in church, like... The easy go-tos. The easy go-tos. They... So... Take, for example, when I was 19 and I was in a shooting and I witnessed the murder of two of my friends and I was the fifth person in the hallway and the only one who wasn't shot and two of my friends were killed, one of whom was right behind me and to my right. My life is marked by the before and the after yeah. of that event. It, 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 it completely changed my world and it took me years to recover. And then after that, people had the audacity to tell me, oh, God let that happen to you so that you would have a great testimony. <laughs> and, and I was just like I'm so sorry. I find that so laughable. It is it's laughable. so insensitive. And so insulting. And and I was just like, I'm sorry. You did not know these people. Your what? God would let a human life be extinguished yes. simply so I could write a book and go on the and church go circuit on a tour and, and, and convince tell... everyone that somehow God is great because he let me live. Exactly. That's and, fucked up. And I, and I just wanted to be like, fuck you. And then on the other hand, I had people telling me, oh, you're still dealing with that? Oh, you're still dealing with the shooting? That's been a while now. Why are you still dealing with that? Just total, <laughs> total fucking disconnect. One person, one person was like, Stephen, you are a prince in the kingdom of God. You are a child of God. Why don't you own your authority in Christ and get over this? You to know, me, that that is just that is warm language that excuses actual hard questions you have to exactly. ask and just embellishes the emotional warmth. Like exactly. it's just fabricating an emotional warmth and, that it does not need to be there. And and I I just and I was speechless because of the audacity yeah. of such responses. And and then you know just recently, uh, well, and, and it's not that these people are are not well meaning. I guess no, I should, I, they're if, very well meaning. Yeah, like they're not trying to be no, insensitive. No, and and that's kind of the tragedy of human nature is that from the best of intentions we do fucking stupid shit. And then just also. Just recently, back in December of last year of 2017, my cousin died. Mm. Um, we were pretty close and, you know, we grew up together. He died of cancer. He was three years older than me. I'm 29. Mm. He was in his early 30s wow. and he was the healthiest guy I'd ever met. And I, you know, I went to his funeral. It was a gorgeous funeral. It was on a farm and it was a natural burial. He was wrapped in purple linen, no coffin, no preservatives, 
no embalming fluid whatsoever. And it was under a tree and I literally buried my cousin with a shovel. And that was back in December. Hmm. And just when you have close encounters with death like that, when someone close to you who was a person of strength and, and integrity and who was very young and then, you know, witnessing a shooting, these ants, these questions about the sovereignty of God do start to kind of crumble for you. Yeah. And the best answer I can give is I don't know. And that's ultimately it. Yeah. You know, I don't know why we suffer in this way. I don't know if there is a God, why he or she or it responds or does not respond in the way they do. And I've found peace in not having to have an answer. Exactly. And not having to have an explanation. Exactly. You know, I find the concepts of God that I find peace in is an inner guiding myth. Hmm. I find comfort in God as an inner guiding myth. I find comfort in the play, in the role play of communicating with God. It might be fantasy, but it at least changes me and guides me. Yeah. I find comfort in the idea of God as the ground of being. And the thing is, though, this process of doubt and deconstruction of faith, has at, it has led me into a more uncomfortable place. Mm. And I have existential questions about the world that do frighten me, and I don't have answers to, more so than before. You know, the question of death and, and what do I do with my life in light of that death, that is a more frightening <clears throat> question to me. That is a more terrifying thing for me. I think we forget too quickly that at the end of the day, we all have to do the same thing and we all end up doing the same thing. Yes. We have to put that shit on hold and go do the dishes. Exactly. I, you know, <laughs> I mean, I have these incredible, incredibly expansive uh, questions and then that we remain all have... unanswered about the universe and God and, and morality and the and, history of the world. And, and we have to do life in spite of yeah, it. Yeah, and we, we just to... still have to go do the dishes. And I, yes. and I think that there's something... I don't know. I think there's something kind of beautiful about that. There's something empowering about it. Yeah. Like whether we like it or not, the show goes on. The dishes life, will still be there. <laughs> life goes on. And that's why, you know, I, I think I mentioned this in one of the previous episodes. My religion has very much become a religion about the present moment mm. and experiencing the present moment as fully as I can and truly embracing what it means to be alive right now. And uh, because this moment will never happen again. And that is an extraordinarily beautiful thing. And I want my religion to be based on that. I want my religion to be based on the embrace of the present moment. Right. And, and that kind of allows me to, to focus on the most important thing, which is the now. And then when I need to, I can... Which actually sounds kind of Christian of you. Absolutely. To let the dead bury their dead and then worry not about the future. Exactly. Well, and... and you know, it allows me to focus on the most important thing. And then I, when I do need to ask those hard questions, I can go to that safe place. Right. I can go up into my tower, into my ivory tower and yeah. pontificate. And then I come down and do life. But, you know, there's a really powerful book that was kind of my introduction to this. And my partner gave it to me. And it's called The Sacrament of the Present Moment. Mm. And it is by a Jesuit mystic. And basically what it teaches is that the present moment is the sacrament. It is the present moment is the sacrament that unites us with God. Right. 
and the divine and ultimate reality. And, you know, while my views may have shifted from when I first read that book, that that core of embracing the present moment as the most significant sacrament mm. has stayed with me. Yeah. And so, you know, I feel like no matter what my religion turns into, it, that is going to be kind of central to it. Well, I think we're coming to the end. Shall we uh, <laughs> put our hands on the table and do a seance to close out the episode? <laughs> I summon the ending of the podcast. <laughs> now that yeah. we are coming to the conclusion of casting this pod. Yes. Um, Cast your pods upon him. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. That's it for our show. Uh, the music is by The Jelly Rocks. The artwork is by Justin Caleb Bryant. If you enjoy my work, please go to sbradfordlong.com to read my dozens of articles about faith and doubt and LGBT issues. And I'd love to hear from you. If you have comments or questions or suggestions, please tweet at me. Please send me an email. Send me an owl. I would love to hear from you. So, Matt. Yes. You have an album. I do. It's I, I play in a band called Eleven D Seven, and we just put out a brand new record. It's called Rad Science, and it's hands down uh, the best thing that I think we've ever done. And I agree. If it's you pretty are, awesome. If you're a fan of mixing a whole lot of pop and punk and EDM and, and new wave influences together, that's all our band does. So that it's, sounds like your bag. You'll love it. It's fantastic. Yeah. All right. Well, instead of my regular outro, we'll play a song from uh, Rad Science. Love it. All right. We'll see you next week. I feel crushed to pieces today. Below average in every single way. Like I bet it all without a hand to play. So I'm breaking. Breaking what I tried so hard to make.
to me Breaking everything that we could be 